1: again today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a fun show for you. We're celebrating ET's 40th anniversary, and our guest is one of our very favorites. It's Canadian film critic Jeff Roberts. Jeff, welcome back to Movie Attic headquarters. How are you?
0: I'm fine. Uh you mentioned that it was out about ET. We're actually doing a special on Tim Burton. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's right. That's okay. Well, that's
1: good. <laughs> I guess we're celebrating ET's 40th anniversary by doing a special about. Yes, we did anniversary. that
0: uh, the last time. Time out in Mac Bates was the was the host. Uh, listeners can check that uh, out on the the website after the show if they'd like.
1: Okay, well, do you know what? That's the only script that I have. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yep. So I must have got gotten sent the wrong one. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we can start by uh, how Vincent Price influenced uh, Tim Burton. And uh, from the t- time that uh, Tim Burton was three years old, he had a fascination with watching classic films with monsters in them, including Dracula and Frankenstein, among others, and would watch those late at night when they played on TV with his father. He was dismayed that those films uh, later in his uh, teen, teen years uh, focused on the hatred people had towards monsters and viewed the monsters as misunderstood and identified with their plight. Now, he loved the work of Edgar Allan Poe and scary movies with Vincent Price because of how sincere he found those performances. He would send the storyboards for a short film that he had envisioned as a children's book first, called Vincent, about a boy obsessed with Vincent Price and wanting to be him. He was shocked when Price liked the idea for the film and agreed to do the narration for it this led to a friendship of working with Vincent Price again on Edward Scissorhands. Now, around the time of Price's death in 1993, Burton was working on a feature-length documentary on him that he ended up never releasing. In an interview with frequent collaborators Collaborator Danny Elfman for Interview Magazine, Burton stated that he felt connected to Vincent Price, and that helped him to get through life. I had written Vincent, he said, and I did it in the kind of storybook or storyboard fashion. I just sent it to him. I had no idea what would happen. It was most likely that he wouldn't respond, but he responded pretty immediately, and he seemed to get into it. That made me feel really great. He didn't see it as just a fan thing. That's why it was really special to me. It's hard to get projects going, and also hard to meet someone that you've admired. You never know what they're going to be like. They could be a complete jerk, you know. But he was so great to me and supportive, and even though it was a short film, he helped me get it made. That was my first experience in this kind of world, and it was a really positive one. That is something that stays with you forever.
1: I found the questions. And that is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that, you know, live, it's live, that happens. All right. So what role did Disney play in Tim Burton's career?
0: Well, Burton went to California Institute for the Arts, where there was a special animation program. It was brand new when he got there in the 1970s. It was founded by Disney, and he had a scholarship, but lost it and had to figure out a way to repay his loans. And he had no idea how he was going to do it. But luckily, Disney saw a short that he made called "Stock of the Celery Monster." This led to them giving him an apprenticeship. Now he hated it because he was. Great of them had to draw in a very strict uh, way that Disney dictated for their Fox and the Hound movie, so he was given full range later on that year to design characters that would appear in the Black cauldron. but once Disney saw this work, they deemed it far too dark and didn't include it in the final film. They then shelved three more of his uh, short films after commissioning them and forced, forced uh, that forced him to leave the company and attempt to make it on his own. Now a renowned director, the company has made Alice in Wonderland, Dumbo, and a full-length version of Frank and Weenie with him.
1: They're brilliant, too. They're brilliant. So what was Tim Burton's big break?
0: Well, Burton had a short film in 1982 that was commissioned by Disney called Frankenweenie about a boy who reanimates his dead dog, Sparky, who was hit by a car. Now, this short was supposed to play before the re-release of Pinocchio, but it got slapped with a PG rating by the MPAA in America, and there was a rule that it couldn't play with a G-rated film. So Disney put it back in their vault. The short film did circulate among people in Hollywood circles, though. Now, one of these individuals was Paul Rubens, who had created the Pee Wee Herman character, and he was looking for a feature, uh, looking to do a feature-length film with the character. And he saw Burton's short film and knew that it was that he was the only director that he wanted to work with on the project, which became a surprise hit that put put Burton on the map of every studio approaching him to do projects. He later remade the short as a full-length movie.
1: Amazing. So, what are your top three favorite Tim Burton films and
0: why? Batman is my favorite. Now, it served as my introduction to Tim Burton's work. I had only started to read the comics a year prior when the Death in the Family series came out where readers voted to kill off the latest iteration of Robin. The movie took viewers into Gotham City, where it was dark, gray, cold, damp, and criminals lurked in the shadows, as did Batman, whom residents didn't know was, psych- was either psychotic or someone that uh, would help them. And Batman lurked in the shadows, as well as the uh, the Joker, who uh, Batman inadvertently gave birth to when he dropped the Jack Napier character into a vat of chemicals. Jack Nicholson's performance is incredible, and Michael Keaton is the only actor in my mind who ever understood that Batman and Bruce Wayne were not two different people, but rather intertwined and played them as such. Burton got at the heart of who Batman was and showed audiences what lay behind Batman's mask and how psychologically damaged Bruce Wayne Batman is. Now, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice is another favorite. I said this name three times there, (laughs) and nothing really happened. It's surprising looking at the film now to learn through my research that nobody in Hollywood wanted to even make that film or star in it. Most filmmakers and actors really didn't even get the plot. Burton spent two years between Pee-wee's Big Adventure and uh, to make Beetlejuice, where he didn't have a, uh, where he didn't do a movie on purpose because he couldn't find a script that he liked that had been sent to him until this one arrived on his desk. While Michael Keaton is perfectly cast at Beetlejuice, he was not even Burton's first choice. In fact, the movie would have been a heck of a lot different if Sammy Davis Jr. actually portrayed the Beetlejuice character. Now, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is another one of my favorites. I like how Burton and screenwriter John August adapted Roald Dahl's classic novel and had Depp portraying Willy Wonka as a sociopath and dove into why he has cut himself off from society and the estrangement he has from his own father that drove him to become the person that he is. It's a brilliant portrayal and the visuals just popped to the point I wanted to reach through the television screen and sample some of the props myself. Incidentally, the chocolate river is actually real in that film. They had Nestle design it and pump in a mixture that smelled great for about a week of filming until it became absolutely intolerable to the cast and crew, the smell.
1: I I just did not know that. I really love that whole story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, so what do you think of the best movies and worst movies Burton made with Johnny Depp? Of course, this is very well, timely. Edward Scissorhand
0: is the most important film that they made together. It was the first film that they actually collaborated on. At the time, Depp was only known for his role in John Waters' film, Crybaby, and for the 21 Jump Street television series. He hated working on that TV show and felt that this character was one-dimensional and that the scripts were absolutely horrendous. Unfortunately, his agent got him into an ironclad contract that he couldn't get out of for that TV show. When he hired uh, a new agent, he got a copy of the Edward Scissor-San- Sitterhand script, and that caused him to cry upon reading it. He then set up an interview in a diner with Tim Burton. He didn't even recognize Burton at first, and, and several months later, after having a him- a meeting. Nothing really happened, and then out of the blue, he uh, got a call where he's being cast in the uh, in the movie. Even though the studio was pushing for an established box office star such as Tom Cruise. Now, Ed Wood is another film that stands out to me as being one of his best performances, where he portrays a director who really hasn't any aptitude at all when it comes to filmmaking, but actually sees himself as a huge talent, but can't get films made until he collaborates with the washed up Bella Lugosi on his final film and 9 from outer space. Sleepy Hollow is another terrific performance where it portrays Mm -hmm. Constance Ichabod Crane who is thrust into a situation where he must find a serial killer and figure out if legend about a headless horseman committing these murders is fantasy or reality. Depp's worst collaboration, rather, with Burton is Dark Shadows. It's an absolute train wreck, with a plot viewers just can't follow. Rotten Tomatoes best describes it as being set in 18th century Maine, where Barnaby Collins, portrayed by Johnny Depp, presides over the town of Collins Sports. He's a rich and powerful playboy, and he feels his own doom when he breaks the heart of a witch named Angelique. Angelique turns Barnaby into a vampire and buries him alive. Two, two centuries later, he escapes from his tomb and finds 1972 Collinsport a very different place. His once grand estate has fallen into ruin, and the dysfunctional remnants of his family have fared little better. Depp has called upon his living psychiatrist to help with family troubles. The film absolutely wastes the considerable talents of Michelle Pfeiffer, Helena Bonham Carter, and Chloe Grace
1: Moretz. He wasn't my favorite either. <laughs> All right, so let's go to the next question. How did Burton's frequent collaborations with Danny Elfman start?
0: Well, Elfman had a band called Oingo Boingo back in 1979 that Burton was a huge fan of. Now, Wikipedia describes this band as New Wave, and it did a lot of pop, ska, and world music. Burton would have Elfman eventually play improvised bits and pieces, and he would tell him what he liked for the Pee Wee's Big Adventure film. And it was uh, Elfman's first ever attempt at writing score. He eventually told A&E's biography program that it was like kids playing around, but they were thrown into a very adult game.
1: Hmm. All right, well, why do you think Dumbo, which was Burton's last movie, flopped? I actually loved this movie.
0: I think that critics killed it to be honest with you because it wasn't perceived as your typical Disney film, but was rather dark. Then there is the financial aspect and it cost Disney 170 million to make it, plus a massive marketing campaign where the studio marketed it as a family friendly, with the film only grossing 114 million in the United States. Tim Burton commented on his children films being perceived as dark in nature when he made El in Wonderland in a 2013 interview with Scott Feinberg, the Hollywood reporter. Where he stated that the kids are pretty cool and get what he's trying to do, and they understand something better than adults could comprehend, and they hesitate to say that they actually like something, once their parents are involved and that their parents have a different viewpoint. He says he tries to be responsible and do what he wants, but uh, points out that Disney films and fairy tales to begin with have a dark undercurrent. He states that he makes films regardless of the audience and that he doesn't make films for a certain age group, but rather films in general. He notes that some of his earlier films got lousy reviews, but over decades, people returned to them and perceived them in a much different light. Current audiences may not yet be ready for films like Dumbo, but you may see them in a different light as time passes by, according to Burton.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed that movie as well. I really did. The
0: other thing, too, is that the 1941 uh, animated version uh, is i've learned through, through research was the shortest movie that disney uh, had ever made so burton kept the the framework like uh about the flying elephant being dumbo and the abuse that his uh mother endured and the the movie just keeps that basic framework and burton builds on it creating other characters such as a man coming back from war to see his children who are um you know, Dumble's friends and, and advocates, and there's the Michael Keaton villain that's added to it with his own theme park, and there's all the abuse that uh, Dumble's mother uh, suffered, and you really see that on, on camera in, in such a, a, a brutal way, and I think that's probably what didn't register with uh, with parents uh, and, and audience in general, and that they... Uh, they skipped that film. But there's also other uh, children's movies that they have learned from research that were out at the same time, such as Shazam. So that uh, probably made it so that uh, there was more than one uh, children's movie to choose from at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they hinted at it in the original about his mother's abuse, you know what I mean? But they outright did it in the in Burton. So, yeah, that was good. All right, so what is Burton's upcoming series titled Wednesday all about?
0: Well, Wednesday is a Netflix series that is a spin-off of the Addams Family because it focuses on that character portrayed by Jenna, Ortega's, by, portrayed by Jenna Ortega. It's about her awkward adolescence and trying to fit in at Nevermore High School where she's considered to be extremely weird. According to Netflix synopsis, she must learn how to harness her sudden psychic abilities and thwart a, a monstrous uh, killing spree that has terrori- terrorized rather the local town, and solve the supernatural mystery that embroiled her parents 25 years ago, all while navigating her new and very tangled relationships at school. Now, the series is expected to be released by the end of the year, probably around Halloween is what they're hinting at, with uh, Burton directing all eight episodes of the series' first season. Catherine Zeta-Jones will portray Morticia. Incidentally, (gasps) Christina Ricci Ricci will also have a role, too, that uh, hasn't been uh, announced who she's going to be
1: playing exactly. I am really looking forward to that. Are you looking forward to that?
0: Oh yes, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's not okay. the first time that Tim Burton has uh, flirted with making a movie about the Adams Family. Uh, he was going to make a 3D uh, movie a um, the Adams Family in the uh, mid-2000s, uh, but for whatever reason uh, it was a project that fell through. But I, I think in a way that's a good thing, because he's going to be doing the live-action uh, version here, and uh, I think it really suits uh, what he does. Story yeah, line sounds great, and I'm sure the visuals will, will be as well.
1: You know they will be. I mean, that is the one thing for sure, they will be. <laughs> so, do you think Will Will, do you think Burton's Beetlejuice 2 will be released soon?
0: Well, Beetlejuice 2 has been announced as Tim Burton's next project, and has financial backing from Brad Pitt's company, Plan B Entertainment, and David Katzenberg's Cat Smith Productions, which was responsible for bringing the 2017 adaptation of Stephen King's It to the big screen in 2017. They were also responsible for the 2019 re- reboot of the Child's Play movies featuring the evil doll, Chucky. That being said, that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie will make it to the big screen, but that is simply in development. Now, there has been numerous attempts since 1988 to get a sequel off of the ground. According to an article that I read about the film written by Brian Wolford of the Joe Blow film site, the initial idea for a sequel uh, after 1988 was called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And it was to be set in mm-hmm. Hawaii and revolved around Jeffrey Jones's character from the original buying a property that he didn't know was above an ancient burial, burial ground for the Great Kahuna. who decides to haunt them, and the only person that could have stopped him was Beetlejuice. Wolford states that this movie didn't go ahead because Burton was working on finishing Edward Scissorhands and both he and Michael Keaton were unavailable because they were diving straight into a sequel for Batman called Batman Returns and it was going immediately into production at the time. I also learned from Wikipedia that Kevin Smith and not Tim Burton was considered to direct another sequel in 1996 but that Kevin Smith shot it down. Then again, there was another attempt for a sequel in 2011 to be written by Seth Graham Smith, who incidentally co-founded Cat Smith's Productions, who is supposedly producing the sequel now. And he finished the script in 2015, and then said the film would go into production uh, before the cameras uh, later that year. That simply didn't happen. Then in October 2017, Mike Voldanovich was hired to write that script with uh, Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers uh, ended up shelving it in 2019, which circles us back to now. I know based on interviews that Michael Keaton did and those with uh, Renona Ryder uh, recently that neither they nor Burton would commit to making the film unless the script was of high quality and that they worked together. Now there's tons of rumors on this one about cast and plot, but IMDB did say that the official plot is that the original cast and crew plus the new additions return when Beetlejuice is found homeless in the neither world. Now, he takes it upon himself to travel back to the mortal world, seeking comfort, only to find that the Maitland house has blown up due to a gas leak, leaving our beloved characters without a humble home to share the love. Now, in search of guidance, the crew travels down to the netherworld, world, only to find that there's a new sheriff in these parts, the Jersey Devil, and is supposed to be portrayed by Will Arnett. Through a surprising turn of events, the self-known ladies' man, Beetlejuice, learns that the Jersey Devil is his long-lost son— For one of his uh, numerous love affairs, Lydia Dietz is wooed by the enchanting Jersey Devil, despite being married to a struggling real estate agent. For kooky scenarios and the static characters, the fun will never stop in the sequel. Though entertaining, the sequel is said to be a heartwarming tale that shows Beetlejuice as just another man trying to find his way in the world. And uh, that is the... the, um, official plot that that they've got listed down for what uh, Beetlejuice 2 will be uh, about if it does actually uh, get filmed before the cameras.
1: So I would watch that. I don't want a remake of the original Beetlejuice, but I would love like after. You know what I mean? That would be good. And it seems to be
0: a great time to be making this movie because um, they have the uh, Beetlejuice... Show on on Broadway that's uh, that's done pretty well and it will be touring soon. As far as I I understand.
1: Mhm. Well, and all the actors are are like still very popular, you know, still. So it would draw everybody in, like all the new people from Stranger Things. You know, the kids from who watch Stranger Things now, from Ronona Ryder and and the people who watch Hits Creek, they would be great. I, would, I think it would Well, there a good has timeline. been a rumor
0: that's circulating, it's false so far, that Johnny Depp is supposed to be in this uh, sequel. Oh. And I, I just want to say that according to all the information I've found, that that's not going to be true. Okay. That's the one rumor that I can dispel about the sequel.
1: Yeah, they don't need him. Even though he's great, they don't need him. <laughs> it's fine without him. <laughs> It was a fantastic movie. That and Edward Scissorhands are my two favorites. So, All right. So if you could describe Tim Burton in three words, what would those words be? Yeah. Uh,
0: that's a hard question.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've,
0: I've thought about this a lot. Um, now, the word, word genius is something that gets tossed around too much that doesn't carry much weight and is kind of cliched. Um, it doesn't really carry much weight anymore uh, The best way I could describe him is as being bold uh, Courageous in his choices and decisions And an absolute complete visionary There's nobody else that can do what he does Or have the same imagination And I don't think there's going to be anyone like Tim Burton Since Or ever for that matter
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. he is unique, that is for sure I love everything about his movies. Do you have anything else about Tim Burton you would like to mention?
0: I have a really crazy casting story about uh, um, Batman Returns. Now, Michelle Pfeiffer was not the original person who was going to be playing uh, Catwoman in that movie. Uh, The person that uh, Tim Burton had selected was Annette Bening, and uh, she became pregnant, and that's how we got Michelle Pfeiffer in the role. There was an actress named Sean Young, was supposed to play Vicky Vale in the uh, Batman 1989 film, but she fell off her horse, from what I was reading, and uh, injured herself and couldn't make the the film. So that's how we got Kim Basinger playing Vicky Vale. So when Batman Returns came around, she was adamant that she was the only actress that should be cast in that part. So what she did was she ended up. Uh, uh, you know, badging Tim Burton's company about it, and she dressed up in a uh, costume as as Catwoman, and actually went to the uh, Warner Brothers uh, Studios lot to meet, try to meet with him. Uh, he didn't see her, and then then had someone go back to the studio, That was her, her bodyguard, and gave him the, gave him the, uh, the go the go ahead to uh, actually tackle Burton if uh, if he saw. Someone, and he uh, tackled a security guard at, uh, at Warner Brothers, and they got thrown off the lot. So what happened after that is that she dressed up in a Catwoman suit and went on the Joan Rivers uh, show at the time and blasted Tim Burton and everyone at the studio about uh, not casting her in the role. So of course this was pretty damaging to her career and and uh, a pretty. Uh, Stupid choice, and uh, Burton said in in, uh, in a book called Burton on Burton, which is an which is more or less kind of an autobiography by him, but with interviews on all of his films that uh, that he was a director and had the right to make whatever casting choices he wanted, and it was not a personal uh, attack to her uh, to cast uh, originally at Benning and then uh, having to cast Michelle
1: Pfeiffer. Well, you know. At least you tried. (laughs) All right, anything else? I just want to say sorry about the mess up at the beginning, but we got everything worked out. Thank you for everything, Jeff. You're fantastic. Um, I'd like to go ahead. Do you have more?
0: Uh, Yes. uh, Planet of the Apes is one of the movies that uh, Tim Burton is not proud of having made. Um, The reason for that was that he was chosen as the director of this film, and that the the studio behind it actually started mar- marketing it um, and, and uh, developed a poster and a whole PR campaign for it before he even had a script uh, to shoot the the film. And he didn't know what he was doing at that time until he did get the script, and they were constantly revising it as they they were, were filming. And he wasn't uh, comfortable uh, at all with it, and... Um, they were pressuring him to uh, make this movie by a certain deadline. So it was something he, he had a, a miserable time uh, time doing and wasn't uh, proud of the, the final pro- product. And, uh, you know, critics
1: didn't like it either. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> not so much. <laughs> I'm not a critic, though, remember? I'm not a critic. <laughs> All right, well, I guess our time's almost up. Unless you have anything else to add.
0: Well, Batman was another film that was uh was difficult for him because he was constantly fighting with the uh producers Peter uh Goober and John John Peters about this this film and uh, they were trying to uh, wrestle creative control from him as was uh what's Warner and at the time uh DC Comics and uh morning brothers were getting a deluge of uh, of letters about uh, the casting of uh, of Michael Keaton because at the time Michael Keaton was a uh, a comic a stand-up comic and he'd been in uh, in comedic movies and uh, the uh, fans didn't like that he was cast until uh, they saw that Jack Nicholson was going to be the Joker and uh, a lot of what you see in that that movie uh, is improvised because they were constantly fiddling with the the script and he was dealing with these people over creative control. So um, he wasn't totally happy with the movie himself and actually doubted himself um, when all those letters were coming in while he was making the movie that uh, it wouldn't uh, match up to people's expectations. And he didn't feel good about the movie until he saw it in in theatres. And even after that, uh, he said that... uh, that he was only proud of the uh, Batman Returns uh, sequel because that uh, really uh, matched his vision, and he had um, had uh, the time to to really do it the, the way he wanted. And he didn't rush into uh, doing the the uh, Batman sequel right after the, the first one, like Warner Brothers had wanted him to do. They had actually left uh, the set, the Batcave set from that movie, up in the studios in in. Uh, in England, because they thought he was going to go directly into a sequel, and they kept pressuring him, and pressuring him. And uh, of course, he didn't. So uh, when Batman Returns did roll roll around, uh, they ended up filming it in Los Angeles and not using the the set that uh, Warner
1: Brothers had kept
0: up for for two years.
1: I have a question to ask you. Sure. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you, it's just really just to get an idea. But so he always uses like a lot of the same people for his um, movies. you know what I mean? Like he has the Brat Pack or whatever they're called, you know, the same as like the, the director of 16 Candles and all that. I wonder why he does that.
0: He says it's much easier to work with people that, that he knows rather than uh, deal with people that he he doesn't know and doesn't really pay, pay much attention to the roles that uh, actors have been in, in before. And, uh, the thing is that he doesn't audition people. What he does is oh. he, meets, he meets with them and uh, you know discusses things that aren't necessarily about the films as well as uh, things that are about the films to get a general sense of who they are as people and whether or not he can actually work with them as people first and then determines <laughs> whether or not he can cast them in, in certain roles. He prefers to work with people that he's worked with before because he has a... Has a uh, uh, working relationship with them as well as a relationship with them uh, off camera, which makes it so much easier to make a, a movie because he knows exactly what they can can do and uh, how he can push them for for certain roles. I mean, he's known sure. Johnny Depp for 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 years and years, and they're on the same wavelength and uh, and uh, you know have been friends and and actually hang out and all that kind of thing off uh, camera and. Uh, yeah, it's so much easier for him to work with people that he knows rather than take a risk on people that he has never worked with uh, being, you know, uh, total jerks or whatever on, on, on set or not, for sure, that sure. matter.
1: He's very eccentric. I could see where he would want his people around him. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> Right. Well, that's. Not, I don't have any more questions. Do you have more to add? I could just go on and on if you have more to add.
0: <laughs> um. Well, uh, that that's the, the the stories that I had uh, had known about him and uh, and researched. So, um,
1: all right. That might be a, well, a,
0: a great place to conclude.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? Thank you so much. You're such a great guest, and I really enjoy being on the air with you. And thank you for like jumping in when i had the wrong script i really appreciate it i'd like to thank all the folks at Block talk radio for their support as well and to all our listeners and a big shout out to nancy lombardo and angela drake for supporting our show on their own radio shows nancy's the host of what's the buzz right here on Block talk radio every monday and friday morning at ten thirty eastern standard time and angela hosts a variety of shows on 502 fallen angel radio So that's all for now, folks. Thank you for listening.